Would you stand to your feet with me to honor God's word? We're in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 22 through 28. Hebrews 9, 22 through 28. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The word of the Lord. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Lord, please add a blessing to the reading of your word that goes beyond my thoughts. Help us to rightly process the truth and the severity of your word. All of us are cognitively aware that we're going to die. And most of us that we will face judgment. But most of us, Lord, starting with myself often go on living anyway as if the world is all there was and as if the the current worries and fears that are before me are are the, the things that are most real. So Lord, rescue us from this error. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Amen. Well, good morning again. If you're joining us, my name is Peter. Uh, I serve as the lead pastor. Thank you for for visiting us. Today we're in week six of our series, The Apostles' Creed. Since about the 200s AD, this creed has been used to unite the people of God in mission and in the central message of our faith. And it's also been used to articulate and defend Scripture, which is why we're going through the creed one phrase at a time and then preaching on that topic from Scripture. So I'm going to ask you to read with me. We're towards the end of the creed. Read with me from the screen the next phrase from our creed. He, Jesus, is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. Today, I'll preach through our text. Hebrews chapter 9. I'll preach a message about finality. 
finality. The work of Christ brings utter and absolute finality. Now, you need to know that up until the coming of Jesus, the Jews who were awaiting the Messiah thought that the Messiah would come and bring, in essence, an end of the world. It would end time as we know it. But many of y'all know that Jesus came in a way that was different than was expected, just like he continues to move in your life today, different than you expect. He came and he lived a perfect moral life, the only person to ever have done that. And then he died. They're thinking, wait a minute, this isn't in the plan. It's not supposed to go like this. And he surprises them even more. He rises again on the third day. And he ascends to heaven. He goes away and leaves these guys like, what's going on here? This wasn't supposed to be this way. Of course it was. They just didn't expect it to go that way. It was a gigantic surprise. Instead of Christ's coming, affecting in essence the end of time, his coming brought with it an extended end times period. As verse 26 here calls it, the end of the ages, an extended period of time. At the end of the ages, there are not one, but two comings of the same one Messiah. The first coming, he comes to deal with sin and death and to put it away and to purify a people for himself. And the surprise in that is that the Romans are still on the throne. He came and he is king, but there's these other kingdoms still being resolved and vanquished. Sin and death have lost their reign through those who have faith in him, but but faith as a, a seed of peace that he brings as a fruit comes in seed form. This is different. It, it, glo- it grows like a mustard seed and overtakes other things, and we still suffer through diseases and illness. This is different than what was expected. The first coming brings an end to sin by purifying a people for himself. And in the second coming, he will come and purify the whole world by putting judgment on everyone who's not under the purity of his first coming and the work of his death. This is a very severe thing to understand. It's a very severe mercy that we should not take lightly. The extended season of mercy has been at least a few thousand years where we can enjoy Jesus. We can bring as many other people into the adventure and the enjoyment of the faith as possible Or we can waste our lives with lesser things. And I'm here to warn you that if lesser things occupy a greater eagerness or focus in your life, you're in great danger. You're in great danger. And God has been so merciful to you to tell you that, if that's you. Through someone like me that also has to process the same message. Jesus brings finality in two stages, this first coming and his second coming. And so the way I want to work through our passage is to, to understand finality 
in first his first coming and next his second coming. The first part of our, 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 our passage will talk about final atonement. Final atonement. What he came in his first coming to do. In the second part of our passage, we'll get to verses 27 and 28. And we'll talk about final judgment. The purpose of his second coming. So first of all, final atonement. The writer of Hebrews, before talking about final atonement, wants to give perspective for atonement in general. Verse 22, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood. This is what atonement is speaks about covering with a blood sacrifice. You know, one of the marks of sinfulness and fallenness in humanity is that we're so confidently oblivious to our own dirtiness and sin. And we kind of try to cover it up. And when sin bubbles up to the surface in our lives, we usually try to, you know, wash it away, clean it up with our own sin. But sin doesn't clean sin up that, that well. I remember... I'll illustrate this with a memory from over eight years ago. My oldest daughter was our only daughter at the time. She, our Hadassah was one. And uh, she saw me shaving for the first time. And she turns around the corner like, what is that stuff on his face? All this white shaving cream. And she gets closer with this weird look on her face. And right at that moment, a plop of shaving cream falls and splatters on the tile. And she looks up and says, I help. I help. And she reaches down to clean it up, right? But just spreads it around. I had to show her in that moment that you don't clean shaving cream up with shaving cream. There has to be a different substance that neutralizes the shaving cream in order to rightly extract it. In that case, it was, it was uh, you know, clean water on a towel and we cleaned it up. And I used that illustration to ask you, What different substance is capable of neutralizing and extracting the deep dirtiness of sin in the human heart? Nothing but the blood. See, with us, when sin boils to the surface in our heart, uh, it's usually only when we get caught, when we actually notice it, we say something like we can't unsay or we make a really bad financial decision or whatever it is and we try to clean it up and we just end up spreading it around, really extending the vector of the virus to, to not only hurt us but hurt more things and more people. That's what we do. Only blood can wash us. And let's look deeper. When it says here in verse 22, this is so beautiful. We don't see this in the translation, but when it says... Almost everything is purified with blood. This word that it uses for purified is katharezo in Greek, purified. It means to make undefiled, or it means to clean. It's where we get our word catharsis in English. You know, the process of purifying precious metals, they they have to heat it up so hot to where the impurities will boil up from the surface. And this is beautiful. This is the word used to describe how blood purifies the human heart. 
when we try to cleanse ourselves, it just spreads it around. But the blood of Jesus in particular has a power to bring a cathartic purity to us. So maybe if I see an anger problem in myself and I try to clean it up myself, I just spread it around to other areas in my life where I'm angry about. But only the blood of Jesus can bring a catharsis to, to show me that the anger is rooted in something deeper, an unforgiveness that I have perhaps. Or when there's a lust problem, I just can't seem to see people right and see the world rightly and see women rightly. I can try to clean that up and, and I can try to put, take apps off of my phone, but only the blood of Jesus can show me the, the deeper anxieties and, and needs for control that I have in my heart. Or, or, or when I have uh, greed tendencies and I'm not using my money rightly and I'm not being generous towards God. Only the blood of Jesus can, can really dig up the root of that, the, the childhood issue of poverty, the, the fear that I have with finances. Only the blood can wash us. Everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The word forgiveness means remission, sending away. There is no sending away of sin. You see, all cultures in human history have understood blood sacrifice and intuitively grasped this. Atonement and bloodshedding is necessary for divine justice and consequence. See, this has always been understood, but what the Jews didn't understand when Jesus came, and what we sometimes struggle to understand, is that Jesus didn't just bring atonement, he brought final atonement. That's why verse 23 goes on. Without, without blood, there's no forgiveness of sin, Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, talking about the, the practices, the religious practices of blood with animals, purified with these rites, the copies, the, the earthly places where we enter into God's presence, but heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. I read this for hours and looked at commentaries and I was troubled by this phrase, right? Because it says that the earthly sacrificial places need to be purified. Well, it makes sense. We're impure. There's sinners there. Why does it say that the heavenly things need to be, need to be purified with a greater sacrifice? Does heaven need a sacrifice? Is heaven dirty? This is what's been troubling me this week. And the answer is no, heaven isn't dirty. Technically, in, until I get there, until you get there. What Jesus is doing through this once and final work is preparing a place in heaven to where the presence of sinners does not defile God. And that the holy presence of God doesn't burn up and consume our sin and us with it. There has to be a purification process that makes the place suitable for God in his holiness to exist and not burn us up and we enjoy his presence. That's the work that Jesus does to purify this place. That's what it means. I came to know Jesus and, and know uh, of my sin and seek forgiveness of sin and learn the gospel in central Oregon 
through a campus ministry that preached the gospel to me. And as much as it dealt with, I was dealing with severe things like we're dealing with today, it brought so much peace to me because I'd, for my whole life, been giving all sorts of false diagnoses to my problems, right? And dealing with the severity of sin for the first time was huge. I came to know Jesus in Central Oregon. Central Oregon was, I, was where I first got my first big boy job. I fought fires with the Forest Service in Oregon in college, in the summers in college. Uh, my first year is where they were first starting to test antimicrobial textiles. Uh, this is like 15 years ago. This is dating myself a bit. Antimicrobial clothes for firefighters who couldn't shower every day, and yet the way that textiles were created caused us to not have the same bacteria on the clothes. It might be gross to you, but I actually have an example of the latest version of this now. This tissue paper, in fact, they're kind of all over the church. We got these antimicrobial tissues during this severe flu season. Inside here, there is a layer that deals with killing the disease of your sneeze. Didn't mean for that to rhyme. Boom, nailed it. There is a layer that deals with it. In essence, it purifies this before the impurity arrives. Think about this. This is purified from an impurity that has not yet been brought to this substance. This is what Jesus does when he enters into heaven. Verse 24, Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Heaven is not dirty and it will not be dirty because Christ is there. And his anti-sin antibodies all up in his body and his words are speaking a greater word than our sin. In heaven, he's preparing for those who would enter by faith. Or as our creed goes, he sits right now at the right hand of God. Can you close your eyes for a second? Sometimes we need to close our eyes and check out of lesser realities like what we see to picture something that's more real. Right now, Jesus sits in heaven. There are holes in his hands. And in his feet, there's a scar at his side to verify that he has made that place a suitable place for those of us who are former sinners, saints by faith, to enter under his covering. Heaven is not dirty. You can open your eyes again. Heaven is not dirty because Christ is there. I wish I could persuade you to trust this over the other voices. Maybe your problem today isn't that you, you're unaware of your sin, but maybe, maybe for you, you're only aware of your sin. So when you think about heaven, you don't have an eagerness and a joy because you're so bound with guilt and obsession over your past and the things that sins you've committed. Do you doubt whether or not you can be fully forgiven by Jesus? 
Are you haunted by decisions you've made in the past? Are you bound by regrets? Convinced that you've committed the unforgivable sins? Recently, I listened to a pastor respond to fears like this in this sort of way. Ask yourself, which is greater, the dirtiness and the ugliness of your sin and the evil of your past, which is considerable. It's not helpful to not consider that. But which is greater, that or the beauty and purity and goodness and value of the person of Jesus Christ? And as you consider this question, this pastor says, beware lest you blaspheme. It's blasphemy to say, I'm too sinful for Christ to save. It's not humility, it's unbelief. It's guilt. It glorifies your sin and thinks so little of Christ. It takes the infinite value of the blood of the Son of God and spits on it and says, His blood is no more valuable than my sin is terrible. If his blood is valuable enough to cover millions, as verse 26 says, untold numbers of many people, then how dare any of us believe that it's not enough to cover me? Final atonement. Verse 25 goes on. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus put away sin. He put away sin. Think about all the debts that are owed in our country, our national debt. The debts that most of us have. The debts that most students have just to go to college. Some of these debts can seem infinite to pay back, right? But they're not. But there is a debt that humans owe God that aren't just seemingly infinite, but they are infinite. We could never put these debts away. We can never, in our own actions, put sin away. To put this infinite debt away, which is infinite because we've rebelled against an infinitely holy God of infinite value, and therefore it's an infinite and eternal debt. To put this debt away, it requires an infinite value to pay. And only an infinite God can pay this value. Christ himself brings finality by a sacrifice, not just of trillions of dollars, what it, what it would take in our national debt, but of something, something infinitely more costly, himself, the infinitely valuable and good and pure and attractive being, really was tortured and brutalized on a Friday afternoon to pay a particular debt for anyone who would have faith in him. Once and for all, the scripture says, a final sacrifice. He brings finality. For many of us, we we might feel stuck in life, like our daily grind of work, uh, certain sin habits feel cyclical. But the beauty is that Jesus brings a once for all 
end and finality. He hung on the cross and he said, it is finished. So his first coming was to put away sin by his final atonement. Now the second thing, his second coming will be to put away sinners by his final judgment. In his second coming, he saves from the fire those who are his, and he judges righteously those who aren't. Now, if we have faith in him, we're not sinners. We're covered by his blood. We have the nature of his heavenly DNA covering us by faith. It's who we are. I am the righteousness of God in Christ because God chose to make him who knew no sin to become sin so that I could be the righteousness of God in Christ. It's not fair. It's mercy. That's who I am now. I'm a saint by faith. Now, if we don't have faith in him, we're not washed by his blood. We're not covered by the judgment he already took upon himself in his first coming. And so we just await our own judgment. Because we're still by nature rebellious enemies, objects of wrath. And it's not some sort of personal vendetta that God has. Like he's some sort of vindictive person. This is divine justice. Sinful blood cries out itself for judgment. Unless his sinless blood can purify us. Let's consider these last two verses. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, why do I say that he comes in a second coming to judge? Well, there's a correlation here. He he says he comes not to deal with sin. That was his first coming. He came to pay for sin fully. Final atonement, right? His second coming, it says, only thing mentioned here in this verse, is he comes to save those waiting for him, those who are covered by his blood. Save from what? Save from judgment. That's clear in all of Scripture. And notice the correlation that the writer of Hebrews gives here. There is... It is appointed for man to die once and then judgment. So there's death and judgment. Everyone say death. Death. And I'll say judgment. Judgment. That in verse 27 that we are appointed to undergo is related in verses 28 to the first and the second coming of Jesus. So why did Jesus come the first time? Death. To die the death that we deserve in our place. Who could ever think of such a great mercy like this? And why is he coming a second time? Judgment. Judgment. It is appointed. You and I have an appointment. Think about appointments. When we make appointments, we typically, you know, like we'll we'll call the dentist or whatever and be like, okay, well, this fits on my calendar. This works for me. Okay, that's, that's convenient for me. Okay, let's do this, this time, this day. And then when the appointment arrives, like if we feel like canceling it or being a little late, or whatever, we can do that, right? It is not so with the appointment that we have with death. Right. 
Maybe it's not in our calendar, but it's surely appointed. We won't be late. We won't be early. None of us know when it is. Probably most of us, it's earlier than we expect, right? Acts 17, Paul says that God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Our appointment with death is fixed. When we die, we will get to the the throne of God and we will either receive a voucher for a payment already rendered or we will receive a bill for the infinite cost and the payment of judgment that awaits us leading up from the the day of our death to the, the final day of final judgment. There will be no second chances, no reincarnation. We get one appointment. Our creed says Jesus sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. Let me describe this day through what John says in Revelation 20. John the Apostle had a vision, and he said, In this vision, death and Hades were given up to the dead and those who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in, written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now this is severe language, and it correlates with the type of severity like torture, scourging, crucifixion. You see, the, the same things that Jesus suffered for us in his first coming so that we wouldn't suffer it in his second coming. In fact, I have a point I need to make that correlates these two points. You will either be judged in the second coming by what you have done or by what Christ has done for you in his first coming. You'll either be judged in the second coming by what you have done or not done or you will be judged by what Christ has done for you in his first coming. See, on that last day, on our appointed day, we'll either receive justice or mercy. No one receives injustice. No one can look at a righteous God in the eye and say, this is unfair. No one. And our generation really scoffs at this idea, and I want to be really careful here. Why is it that we can watch movies like Outbreak, right? And while we're eating our popcorn... We can celebrate you know, the people that are dying that need to die so that the disease doesn't spread and kill all of humanity, right? We'll eat our popcorn and understand that, and all the, whole, the whole time we'll scoff at a God who is doing what he, he will to end a worse outbreak that has overtaken everyone and caused rebellion and disgusting things to wash and, and destroy people's lives. Or we'll, we'll, we'll spend billions of dollars entertaining ideas like the zombie apocalypse, right? Fictional things. And, and we'll celebrate with no, no problem killing all sorts of zombies. But something worse than the zombie apocalypse came upon all of us. 
and we don't rightly deal with that or think about it. We spend billions of dollars on pornography to feed our lust that is insatiable. And that's why there's a correlating rise that we're all responsible for in one way because of our own dysphoria sexually. A correlating rise, hundreds of millions of dollars in child porn. We abuse people, we abuse God's planet, and we slander each other. We kill babies, we make wars, whereas 2 Timothy 3 says, lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, abusive, disobedient, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, and all these things, and we have the audacity to scoff at God as if he's not God, as if he doesn't have the right to purify the planet that he owns to put away sin and sinners and demons and Satan himself. Our, our culture's moral ethic is like, don't ever, ever, ever judge unless you're judging God for rightly judging others. This is not right. We should say, if anything, we should scoff at our own lies, our own deception. We should scoff at ourselves and say, how can any of us be saved? The question's out there. How can you say that there's, there's only one that can save? How can there be any that would save me? I know what I've done. I know what I've said. I know what I've thought. How can there be any sort of savior like this that's this good? Or as the writer of Hebrews says, how can we reject such a great salvation? Such a severe mercy. Look, I don't want to stand up here on this platform and sound like a mean fundamentalist, Right? Just being fire and brimstone. But worse than that, I do not want to dishonor the one who tortured himself, underwent torture on the cross so that I could be with him forever and ever. I will not dishonor him. God forbid I preach about faithfulness and marriage and finances and, and I do what I can to, to preach about being successful in this life but I miss the mark in preparing you for your appointed death. He will appear, verse 28, to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And I want to be honest with you. I had trouble with this verse this week because God helped me to take it personally. Uh, We know, we can have confidence that we're washed by the work of his first coming and we're ready for his second coming if we're eagerly awaiting it, right? But I had to be honest with God this week. I am not eagerly awaiting to see Jesus. Like I should, like I can be. Honestly, I'm eagerly awaiting my three-year-old to be done with potty training, right? I'm eagerly awaiting... I see worldliness in my thinking with how I lead church. I'm eagerly awaiting my next plans for what we're going to do with church stuff. And it's worldliness. I'm eagerly awaiting my summer vacation. But I'm not as excited to see Jesus face to face. And it shows in my daily habits. I know I have faith in Jesus. and I'm covered by his blood. But I know that there's also another part of the judgment that involves reward that I'd be missing out on. And, and frankly, Jesus is a real person that I love, and I don't want to grieve him. 
I'm eagerly waiting for something else. I remember uh, 12 years ago today was the day before my wedding. Um, and I remember joking to my groomsmen, like, man, I know Jesus is coming back. And the silly thing is I thought I was being evangelistic to my brothers, and it was just godlessness. I said, I know Jesus is coming back, but hopefully he won't come in the next week because I don't want to go to heaven a virgin. And I thought it was cute and funny. But the one person not laughing at this joke was Jesus, as if sex or any other thing he created is not as good as being in his presence. Lord, help me. There are people in here that error in one of two ways about the final judgment. There are people, maybe you're like me, that you have true faith, but you're grieving God with worldliness. Maybe it's worldliness of guilt, like we were talking about, or worry about something on earth. Or, or maybe it's just you're spending more time on social media than praying, and it's not even close. For me, it's probably all of those. You have true faith, but you're grieving God with worldliness. You're not eagerly waiting for him. Or you might be someone that has false assurance. And I say this with trembling. That you think you're a Christian, but you're really not. It's better to consider this question today than in the last day. It's false conversion. See, maybe you've been told about hell. And knowing what words we speak about hell, you're disinclined to want to go there, right? So, so you, you accept Jesus in a prayer. Maybe you've heard this, like, accept Jesus and, and everything will be all right. But that's not necessarily faith. See, that, that's fire insurance, but that's not faith. Here's how you know the difference between faith and fire insurance. This is what kind of false assurance looks like. We, we pray to accept Jesus, but we don't accept all of Jesus. We accept a, a little part of who he is, but not Savior and Lord. And so we go on eagerly awaiting our next promotion, marriage, retirement. Life remains unchanged. Sin habits are unaffected. Maybe I learned some religious words to shout out or tweet out, but nothing changes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go a little further here. I'm going to keep us a little longer. Real assurance brings a change of life that draws you near to God. The very next chapter, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, and since we have a great priest, let us draw near with a true heart. It causes you to draw near and to build others up in the faith in this short time that we call life. But the writer of Hebrews goes on in this chapter to describe describe what happens with false assurance. Verse 26, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving what he would say, a little bit of knowledge or awareness of this truth, there is no longer a sacrifice for this, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witness, witnesses. But how much worse a punishment do you think will be deserved for one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God 
and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. Let's not take for granted such a severe, costly, and beautiful mercy. I believe that when we go to heaven, even Christians that go to heaven, there will be an immediate moment where we shed some tears. Even Christians, it'll be in his presence because we'll be aware in contrast with his beauty and the importance, we'll be aware of, of the shame and remorse for worrying about other things. And I'm here to tell you that we have an opportunity to shed more tears of repentance now and less tears of remorse later. Amen? I want to close with this story. Thank you for hanging with me. story about C.T. Studd and the Cambridge Seven. 1865, there's young men who went to Cambridge University. They were very privileged, like you and me. They had otherworldly things that they were concerned about, but at a moment in time, they read Hudson Taylor's book, It was a missionary to China, the book China's Spiritual Need. All seven of them devoted their life to missions. Their bold testimonies ended up founding the student volunteer movement, which has been one of the greatest missionary movements so far in the history of our faith. C.T. Studd used to be a pro athlete, a cricketer. He was among them, one of the leaders of this group, the Cambridge Seven. He wrote this poem that I want to read for you. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life which will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or for his will. Only one life, which will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life, which will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep in joy or sorrow, thy word to keep faithful and true, whate'er the strife pleasing thee in my daily life, only one life will soon be passed, Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn. And from the world, now let me turn. Living for thee and thee alone, bring thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life, 
It will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call to know, I'll say, "'Twas worth it all. Only one life, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has burned out for thee." Would you stand to your feet with me, please?